All right, so we've been doing our Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series. Uh, if you're uh, keeping score, your outline uh, should look uh, almost identical to last week's, except maybe for some of you, the date at the top has changed. Uh, we used, uh, we kept some of them. If you have last week's date, that's because we had like eight left over, so we figured we'd just save a little printing. Uh, if you have one that says Tuesday, 1024, uh, 2107 that was a typo so that's last week's uh, hopefully Stephen corrected that I asked him to change that today so I could read so this series uh, as you might know we're looking at 15 major biblical emphasis that we think the church needs to do a rethink on and of course in Christianity uh, there's an old saying that theology must become incarnational. Who, who knows what we would mean by that? Jonathan? I'm not sure. Okay. Teresa, you know that one? Incarnational. Um, I guess that it has to be born in you. It has to trend, be alive. Yeah. Uh, that's a, maybe a start toward the answer. Um, what is the incarnation? The doctrine of the incarnation is what? Yeah, that that God the Son, who eternally existed in God, you know, God ex eternally existed in three persons: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the Son uh, became man by being uh, conceived in in a Mary's womb and grew up and developed and was born as a human being in all ways the same as us, except without the without a sin nature. But because Adam was temptable, uh, he was temptable in every way that we are temptable. He suffered in every way that we suffer. Uh, you know, he uh, had all the same desires and all kind of things that we have. He was a human being in every sense. And he is called the Word of God. In the early church, it was often referred to Jesus as the living Word of God. And you'll find him by reading the scriptures, the written Word of God. And so the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1, verse 14. And so when we say theology, theology is the study of God's Word, that's all it is, must become incarnational. What we're saying is this modern tendency to have our biblical doctrines just be an abstraction so that we're just about our theories and if we have the right doctrines, but it's not about our practice, um, we the the word of god has to become flesh in the sense that it has to become the practice of communities of christians and it's not just about it becoming alive or active in in an individual it's about it becoming alive or and, and active in a body of christians god never calls people uh first and foremost while every person must enter the door of christ one at a time individually in the kingdom of god he never calls them to remain individual. He calls them to a committed relationship with his family. And you can't do anything important in the terms of the call of God on your life apart from community. Uh, that, that would be impossible. Now, even when he works tremendously in an individual's life, which we often see at the start of the different things God does, he'll take someone like a Moses and work in their life and bring them to a level of sanctification and maturation before he sends them, like he did with the disciples, like 
Moses did with Joshua, like Elijah did with Elisha, and so forth. But, but he's always sending them to God's people. And uh, you are always called to be incarnational, like we're called to live this Christian life in the family of God. You know, like 1 John, he says, how can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? When someone tells me that so-and-so is a spiritually mature person, I always say, oh yeah, who are they spiritually mature with? <laughs> right? So um, that's, that's a big deal. So when we say theology must become incarnational, it means that we you have to take it out of the rediscovering, and that's why the title of the series is Rediscovering and Restoring. It must be restored in, in the, in, by restoring the church. Okay. Now, there's another way of saying that. Does anybody, if, uh, if I were to say orthodoxy must become? Orthodox. Right. So what, tell us a little bit about that, John. Uh, Hi, Chris. It has to be like continued out through your walk and your lifestyle. And right. What does orthodoxy mean? What, right, right doctrine, but also it could be right, right thinking and right worship, actually. So, um, right set? Like the doxology comes from the same root word. All right. And what is orthopraxy? Right practice. And uh, so in the Greek language, they have two words, theoria, for theory, and praxis for pra practical. And we get practical and pragmatic from, from that word praxis. And so um, if, our, if our ideas about doctrine and stuff don't influence the purity of our walk with God and our, the depth of our character and the quality of our service and our, uh, help us develop the right social skills to become more effective for his kingdom and so forth, then, then our theology is worthless. So that's why the same, the you know, the the uh, series is called rediscovering and restoring biblical Christianity. One of the things you'll notice, most people today don't get an opportunity because there aren't that many out there, to grow up in a community style church. But one of the things you'll notice when you get in a community style church is is um, if if you could look back at yourself over two, three, four years, generally most people's social skills go way up by being in a community style church because you're just relating to people more deeply, more genuinely, more often. And it really, uh, it, it really impacts you uh, over time. So, all right, so with that in mind, we are looking at 15 major emphases. I don't have them listed on this outline, but if you, ha if you want them, they're on previous outlines there. Let us know they're available if you don't have copies, and hopefully you're keeping a notebook of all these and that you have the, the 15. I believe the sixth emphasis is called the kingdom of God. Uh, most people today, actually, if, you, if I were to ask, what do you think the kingdom of God is? They would probably think it has something to do with heaven. It has nothing to do with heaven. But it is, uh, although it's hardly ever spoken of today, uh, that's more representative of the sub-biblical nature of our Christianity because the kingdom of God is the major theme of the whole Bible. And that'd be a little bit like uh, saying, well, I like, I, I like uh, reading John Steinbeck novels, but I don't really know anything about social injustice. <laughs> you, know, like, you, know, like, you know, like you can't uh, say that you actually have come to grips with much of the Bible 
if you haven't discovered that the Bible's all about the progressive unfolding of both the kingdom of God and the kingdom, king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. And so uh, the Bible is all about that God ha has a place in heaven where his, his reign, his kingdom is perfectly manifest. There's nothing uh, opposed to his kingdom in, in his presence. No, no attitudes, no motivations, no uh, power of sin, nothing. And God intends to bring that to the earth and to fill the earth with his glory. And to, to subdue the whole earth uh, by, the, you know, by the principle of his kingdom, which is his liberating love. Many kingdoms are, are by fear, power, and things like that. God's kingdom, the basis of it is love. So, um, on the sixth emphasis, we're talking about perception. That is, we need, we, by God's grace, we need to see that in the scripture. We need to proclaim it. We need to demonstrate it. And we need to embody it. You know, one of the problems we all struggle with is that we don't always embody what we proclaim, right? Anybody ever had a little bit of problem with that? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, um, we are we are seeking for the word of God to become flesh in us, and that's a lifelong journey because we're not Jesus. <laughs> so, and uh, so, all right. Now, last week we started on this outline: What on earth is the kingdom of God? Because of course Jesus prayed, thy, taught us to pray uh, for certain things. Like I don't think He necessarily intended for the Lord's prayer to be something that people recited over and over. Nor do I think it's wrong to recite it, because, you know, a lot of people will quote where Jesus says, don't use vain repetition. But what he's really going after there was a thing that's uh, pretty common in his day and is even common in kind of the faith Christianity today, where, like, if you confess the right things, God has to do it. You know? He's going after that mentality because that's actually witchcraft and manipulation. So um, he's going after if you say something over and over and over again, then, then it's got to happen or something. Um, don't use that using vain repetition uh, as a formula is is not actually godly it's in fact quite ungodly but I, that there's nothing wrong with reciting uh, memorized prayers and the, the advantage of what we know as the Lord's Prayer is that it gives us the major principles that Jesus taught for what we should be praying toward and if we should be, if we're supposed to be praying towards something, what should we also be doing? Yeah, we're working toward it. God, why would God want us to pray towards something that we're not working toward? That would be totally absurd, right? Sure. Right. I just think he, what I'm saying is the like some kind of formula that if you quote the right things or something, God has to do it. Right. You know, it's kind of the idea that if you confess the right things, God has to do it. And like, if you're not healed, then that's then you're the, you're at fault. Or, you know, it's just it's just uh, it's very it's it's you know what they call the charismatic faith message. It's and there's been versions of that in the time of Jesus forward, you know. Okay, so uh, if 
you notice where it says some introductory theme verses, the first one is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's really the essence of the Bible right there. God is bringing his will to earth. And God has allowed it uh, in his sovereign purposes. He allowed man to fall into sin so that man received a, a, a sin nature that resists God's will. And then man corporately developed into, therefore, what the, the, another enemy of God is the world system, which is man in society opposing the kingdom of God. And God allowed there to be a, a, a personal devil, his angels, and another type of being called demons. And those oppose the, the will of God. Anybody ever had any temptations from any demonic spirits or anything? Of course you have. Hopefully you've been involved in casting them out and so forth. They're pretty normal. Uh, Jesus did it a lot. More than one-third of his ministry was casting out demons. So, um, last week we began on Roman numeral 4 there, we began to read these um, definitions of the kingdom. And what I'd like to do, we were on, on number 4 when we ran out of time. So what I'm going to do is just have these three ladies, starting with Jane, read 1, 2, and 3, and I'm going to discipline myself not to comment. Uh, and if anybody wants to uh, look up some of the scriptures that go with one, two, and three, why don't we have you three guys do that in Bradbury? Uh, so that would be Jonathan, you'd be ready to go with Colossians 1, 13, and 14, Anvesh with Exodus 19, 5, and 6, uh, Daniel with 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9, and I guess that's it. So uh, hopefully everyone realizes that 1 Peter 2.9 is actually quoted directly from Exodus 19.5 and 6. And it's one of many scriptures that give conclusive pr proof that the people of God in the New Testament called the church replaced the people of God in the Old Testament Israel. Uh, we talked a little bit about a, a modern doctrine called dispensationalism that developed after the Civil War and uh, is probably the majority doctrine in Bible-believing Christians today. It's the whole point of Cedarville University, for instance. And, um, you know, the doctrine of dispensationalism is that uh, there's two separate peoples of God in the earth, Israel and the church, and that God will actually restore the temple and the sacrifices and the festivals, and we, you know, and uh, that people will... will were saved at one time by works and will again be saved at one time by works, which would negate the whole purpose of Christ's coming. It's a, it's a very abominable heresy, and it's behind a lot of uh, groups that are called messianic uh, that, that really want to, you know, like restore all the festivals and all that kind of stuff. It's a very, very evil thing. Uh, it would be it, like in the early church, there were actually church councils to excommunicate that doctrine. We have kind of a free-for-all today because there's so much division in the church. So uh, does someone have Galatians 1-4? And Josiah, give us Galatians 1-4. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right, so the Maddox brothers actually read uh, fairly uh, related scriptures. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, he gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age. Okay, so 
Uh, that's kind of, uh, we had started on number four last week, so let's have uh, Sam Chen Poon read number four, and then uh, let's see. Why don't we have, uh, did Bradbury, did you read one yet? Why don't you get Colossians, or I'm sorry, Galatians 2.20 ready. I'll, I'll, most people have that memorized, I would think, by now. Uh, Bob, Matthew 23, 10, and 12. Uh, John Luke, uh, go for Hebrews 13, 20. Uh, Byron, 2 Corinthians 4, 12. Uh, Deanna, we won't read all of Romans 6, but um, so you do Luke 22, 25 through 26. We probably won't get that far without my interrupt. Now, re notice that in number one, we talked a little bit about the, the point of the kingdom of God being where God's uh, will is willingly enacted, right? Why is that statement important? Because God's will is always done and always enacted even by his enemies but they don't like you know when satan was thinking he was going to triumph over christ on the cross he couldn't have been more thoroughly deceived he thought this hour and the power of darkness is his and this is awesome and and that's kind of brought out if, if anyone's ever watched uh the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in Chronicles of Narnia. And, you know, they think when they're going to slay Aslan that, you know, that, that this is their hour of triumph, but it was actually their hour of demise. Lewis does a pretty good job bringing that out, you might say. Thank God for different gifts in the church. Uh, so, Sam Chenpoon, read us number four. All right, Bradbury. Um, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now I live in this flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Right. Uh, Bob? Matthew 23, 10 to 12. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. All right, so I put that in pri primarily to show you, like, for instance, one of the great things about the kingdom of God is that it's a completely different idea of what leadership is, right? The kings of the Gentiles lord it over each other, and they enjoy their the accoutrements of power and wealth and glory and so forth. And, uh, you, know, um, you know, to translate what Jesus did at... Uh, at um, the Last Supper, it would be a little bit like if, uh, you know, like the President of the United States showed up at Arbor Church and just in time for the worship meeting and they wanted to give him a special seat to sit and, and so forth. And he, he said, no, just show me where the janitor's closet is. And he, you know, got a bucket out and, and sponge and some soap and he went out and started washing the cars in the parking lot. We wouldn't expect that out of... Uh, our great leaders today, but that's really the model of leadership that Jesus is is kind of saying, you know. And uh, of course, 
there first the natural then the spiritual there is a graduating from serving in natural ways to more spiritual ways and of course you want to serve in the most fruitful way possible but you've got to have that wash the cars thing at the core of what you're doing even when god has you doing much you know more significant things you might say um all right so uh the bible in terms of his premeditated plan uh in in uh, the third uh i guess it'd be yeah emphasis c let me think yeah emphasis c of of that is Ephesus 6c that we'll probably start on either in one or two weeks, depending on how far we get tonight. We're going to look at major themes of the Bible under that come out of the major theme of the kingdom of God. And one of the major themes of the Bible I call God's eternal decree. And what is what do we mean by that? It's the same thing as the word, his premeditated plan. God eternally in the triune uh, God had, had an eternal plan of redemption and covenant uh, to send his son to choose a people out of all, which all covenants are based off of. Right. God lives outside and above time and he decrees everything that happens in the time-space continuum and he tells the end from the beginning and he's declared it to us in the scriptures. So if we are willing to study enough, we actually know what, what's going to happen, and we should be working toward bringing about God's will, which is more than today in almost 95, probably 98% of Bible-believing Christians would say the major theme of the Bible is God's redemption. But that's actually a sub-theme of the major theme of the Bible. That's a very important sub-theme because you can't willingly do God's will to, without being redeemed, right? But actually, the overall theme is that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the theme of the whole Bible. And God is going to restore what he uh, purposed in Eden to all the world. And uh, the debate in eschatology is how much of that's going to be done prior to the second coming of Christ. We happen to be of a theological perspective that a great deal of that's going to be done before the second coming of Christ. And it became, started to become popular again in the late 1800s because it's, it doesn't require as much faith or commitment to believe that nothing positive is going to happen until after the second coming of Christ. The world's just going to get darker and darker. So when we hear of terrorist massacres, we go, see, it's the end times. It's, you know, <laughs> the, things are bad. <laughs> so we greet each other on Sunday morning. Jonathan, how are you? Oh, things are bad. Yep, things are bad. <laughs> you know, it's getting darker out there. Yep, it's getting darker. Praise God. That's a Let's get a copy of the Left Behind series and, pray, and praise the power of the devil and evil. Right? It's very popular in, in evangelical Christianity to praise the power of the devil and, and, and the world system and evil and, and to magnify them over a doctrine called the sovereignty of God. But see, even Satan is just a puppet for God's purposes. And God is sovereign and has eternally decreed all things and works all things out the counsel of his will, and he will cause the knowledge of God to cover the earth as the water covers the seas 
And I think the vast biblical evidence is that that's going to continue to increase until the second coming of Christ and will be a very significant thing in all the earth. And that's almost all Christians believe that the kingdom is not completely here yet, but it's already here yet, right? But how much of that's going to happen, what's kind of amazing is although the... Um, evangelical Christianity began to come, uh, retreat from discipleship and from uh, real life issues and, and, and bu the business world and, you know, politics and, you know, even today, like, gradually, the you know, uh, Christians don't necessarily have the great marriages or aren't that great at raising kids anymore. And all these things are declining, and that's because that's being what's predicted Nevertheless, even in the middle of that, the gospel is exploding worldwide. And guess what? On the very first Easter Sunday, there were less than 120 disciples cowering in an upper room. And some of them went, you know, because uh, some women uh, that, were, that traveled with the disciples went to, to the tomb and, they, and the stone was rolled away and so forth and they went back and told Peter and John and put all the gospels together and they ran down and saw the tomb and so forth you know there's basically you know very few that aren't just cowering and hiding out but by the second Easter the church was already 5,000 people and the church has been bigger and and more dominant and more spread through the earth every Easter since then for 2,000 straight Easter's not quite 2,000, about 13, short of 2,000. And so, um, despite the, all the negativity, the church is exploding worldwide. It's just that one of the things we have to recover is a more complete Christianity, so it will be more culturally relevant and changing, and not just affect what we do behind the closed doors of the church, hiding out in our little scared prayer meetings and called pietism but it'll actually cause us to begin to redeem change and 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 liberate all of culture that's now isn't that a vision worth working for <laughs> that's a vision worth giving your whole life to that will cause you to have to study for many hours and enjoy it because you know why you, you can't study many hours? If you don't connect it, like if you connect studying lots of things to that's what I need to do if I'm going to become a world changer, then it's easy to study for hours and hours and hours. All right. All right. So, um, the Bible reveals that his premeditated plan has always been that his special treasure. Why do I have that in quotes? What's that? Because it's a quote from where? No. Something we read just a little bit ago. Exodus 19.5 and 6 and 1 Peter 2.9. Okay, God is saying that his people will become obedient and they'll become his special treasure in the earth, like God's most valuable possession. Don't you have valuable possessions? 
Like, is, wouldn't there some be some things that if somebody like, you know, like maybe it was your first Bible or something like, you know, I like when I was a young Christian, I had a ten color coded Bible, and uh, it I had these super fine markers and a ruler, and each color meant something. Like orange was the important of the Word of God, yellow was love, black was exhortations. You know, blue was faith, you know. And, and I spent years, like, writing in the Greek words and the margins and so forth. And then a guy in our fellowship who had re, uh, was out uh, sharing the gospel door to door, and he was sharing with these guys from mainland communist China, uh, and they had never heard of the Bible or anything. So he decided he would give them a Bible. So he came back to the campus ministry house, looked on the shelves, found my Bible, and gave it to them, and I never saw it again. But uh, now, maybe that's idolatry, but it was like, you had to give them that Bible? We have boxes of free giveaway Bibles, you know? <laughs> you really had to. So I'm always hoping that someday I'll, like, have these Chinese guys come up to me in heaven and tell me that they were the ones that got that Bible, and it'll all be worth it. <laughs> it'll all be worth it, you know? You know, so what got, what, you know, I don't know what your special treasure is. Like maybe if you're young and idolatrous, it's your car or something, you know, particularly. But you have special treasures, don't you? Aren't there some things you value? Like, and it's not wrong to have something that's a special treasure. What God is saying is my special treasure is going to be my covenant people who love me and do my will. And they're going to be the thing I value the most in the earth. Right? And God has always, from eternity, declared that. That his special treasure, or that's uh, sometimes translated the people for his own possession, would willingly enter into his death. Guess what? To be a follower of Christ, you have to die, right? You know, I've always find uh, that in today's uh, gospel where you don't really tell people the cost that much, one of the things that uh, you find is when you're working with young Christians that maybe uh, didn't, that you didn't lead to Christ and they, uh, so they didn't hear all the message they should have heard, they're sometimes a little bit surprised at the fiery ordeal that they're going through, right? That's why Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal you're going through. And they're like, you know, it's like, is God trying to kill me? And I'm like, that's it. <laughs> now you're getting it. Yeah, yeah, he's trying to kill you. <laughs> he loves you. And he's actually trying to get you to the point, you know, some of us, like, when God's killing us, we know how to, like, live out one of those, like, scenes in the movies where the guy gets shot and he, like, falls against the tables and he, and he goes, like, dies for, like, 30 seconds, uh, stumbling all over. And we really know how to, like, when God's killing us, we really know how to let everyone know, right? <laughs> you know, I've had a, uh, problems with that in my life, that's for sure. Being like a whiner or whatever. Boy, things are tough. <laughs> Die quietly. <laughs> what, what's that? Don't make a disruption. In That's day. right. So, when when we enter into his death, and what what's the key line in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his he was arrested in his trial and his death? What did he had to get to? 
What's that? Well, uh, no, he didn't say that. He did die. <laughs> Not my will, but your will be done. Oh, lie. Oh, oh that, uh, that would be in Genesis 3, right? Y'all shall not die. That was, the, that was the key lie. Yeah, so, but Jesus is like, yeah, not my will, but thy will be done, even to the point of death. Right? That's why for like every Isaac, there's always going to be an altar of sacrifice for everything in your life. God, because God wants your heart. So whether it comes to like your spouse, your career, God's going to cause you to put everything on the altar at one point or another. And, and he's, until he's Lord, you're going to have to walk away from your natural family, from, your, from every possible priority. Right? E even things in your life, like my parents were Christians, but my relationship had to greatly change with them because they weren't Christians willing to go quite as far as what God wanted me to go. Right? So at a certain point in my Christian life, even though they taught me, it was my mom who taught me how to cast out demons. It was my uh, mom who taught me how to get baptized in the Spirit, start moving in the gifts of the Spirit. And my parents had a Christian bookstore. My first nine different translations of the Bible were gifts from my parents. My first several hundred books and my first two or three thousand teaching tapes were all gifts from my parents and, I, and so forth. But a year or two into my Christian life, there became a rub where I, God was calling me to go further and they weren't willing to go further. And at a certain point, they were like, you're taking this Jesus thing too serious. Everyone will have to go through that with, with lots of priorities in life. Because he is trying to kill you. <laughs> He's trying to kill that I want, I will, I think. Which is the God of modern culture. It's amazing. I will get people tell me, well, this is what I think. Like some people will tell you uh, what they, their perspective on stuff. As if it's the, the God honest, most important truth in the world. And people that tell you that often are not very studied or wise or educated at all. But, like, that's become our culture's God. I think, I want, I feel, I get what I want, when I want, how I want it, and so forth. You know, very few people have been willing to take the yokes that God gives them and the crosses. What's that? It's the Burger King religion. Everybody wants to have it their way, right? That's really what we have in America. We have what I call cafeteria-style Christianity. We go through the hors d'oeuvre lines. Let me have a little bit of these delectables, but I, none of this suffering stuff. <laughs> right? So God internally wanted to put his special treasure as a people that would be born through death into one regal head. So why is this one regal head thing important? From a, like, stand back and look at the whole Bible. Why is the regal head thing? What's regal mean? Royal, Royal king. What's what's a head or federal head or? What's that? Yeah. Okay. So, think about Bible history. God makes a covenant 
with a person and their descendants, right? So the first covenant of the Bible is with who? Adam. Who? Adam. Adam, right. And his seed and so forth, right? But what happened to Adam? He broke God's covenant. He fell, right? God made covenant with Noah and his descendants, right? God made covenant with Abraham. And his, the covenant was that in him and his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Adam had a seed. And then when Adam fell, what did God promise Adam and Eve? that from their seed would come one who would crush the head of the serpent even though the serpent would bruise him on the heel, right? That's Genesis 3.15. Does anyone know what that is called in, in theology? Say it more. The proto-evangel, the first promise and announcement of the kingdom of God. I'll put enmity between you, the woman's seed. Now, and who is that seed? Jesus Christ. Yeah, the seed is actually both the descendants of Adam, such as uh, Cain, Abel, Seth, and so forth, and Christ. Because many things in the Bible have like a double fulfillment. So then a Abraham is promised that in your seed will be blessed all the families of the earth. Who's his seed? And Isaac and the, and Christ, right? Now, if you're a follower of the Islam religion, what do they believe Abraham's seed is? Ishmael, right? But the Bible depicts Ishmael is actually Abraham's fleshly, sinful way of trying to bring about the promises because he didn't have faith to wait and trust. Anybody ever kind of jumped the gun and didn't have faith to wait and trust on what God was going to wait and trust on? <laughs> no one here has ever done that? What's that? Hopefully you don't get married. Yeah, hopefully you don't do it in the big areas of life like marriage. If you do that in marriage, you've ruined the call of God for your whole life. There's no coming back from that one. Life's, you know, you're, you're, you know one of the things that we've lost in, the, in American Christianity is life has eternal stakes. You're playing for eternal keeps for yourself and thousands of spiritual descendants. It's pretty damn important what you do every day. Every day you've got crosses to bear that, that will affect hundreds of people down the road. Right? So... All right, so um, the regal head thing is all through Scripture, right? David, what is David promised? That he'll always have a seed and heir on the throne uh, of the people of God, right? And who is his heir? Who's his seed? Solomon, Solomon and Christ, right? Now we're getting it. That's the whole Bible. That's the point of the whole Bible. And so now the kingdom of God, the federal head is who? Say it louder. Jesus. Jesus, right? 
and we have to die to be reborn of that federal head. And of course, unlike America's what radically individualistic Christianity, in the in the federal headships of the Bible, you're born into a family called the family of God. That's why Jesus' own mother and brothers, think about, think about the scene where Jesus' mother and brothers come to get him. Think about who his mother was. An angel had appeared to her. Now, I'm not a lady, uh, as you probably noticed, but uh, <laughs> thus the beard, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, I'm pretty sure I've studied enough about like life and how it works that I understand that like if you had born a child as a virgin, that'd be pretty convincing to you, don't you think? <laughs> right? Yet Mary comes with Jesus' brothers to take him into custody because she thought he had lost his way. Because in Hebrew society, not in scripture, but in the practices of the, of the wrongly motivated, wrongly directed religion of his day, just like today, you were taught to put your natural family ahead of God's family. Right? And so, uh, we don't know when Joseph died, but we do know he died because he's no longer in the, in the picture by the time Jesus enters his public ministry. But he's clearly in the picture in Jesus' childhood, right? So at some point he dies, and what's a Hebrew son supposed to do in their, in their cultural, not biblical way of doing the things of God? Yeah, he's supposed to take, stay home, take over his fam father's business, and raise his brothers and sisters and, and arrange their marriages and make sure they are well provided for and so forth and, and take over his father's job. And Jesus is off doing his public ministry instead, being obedient to the heavenly father instead of, instead of the traditions of his day which aren't actually rooted in the Bible, but, but the Bible-believing people of his day thought they were. They thought he was sinning greatly. And they were willing to guilt-manipulate him back into place. Thousands of evangelical kids today are told not to uh, go forward with the will of God because you're supposed to obey your mom and dad. Really? When you're actually past 16 or 17 years old? I don't think so. Maybe up till 14 or 16 or maybe even 18. But, you know, one of the things I appreciated about my parents, even though they thought like I was taking the Christian thing too seriously, they always were like, you got to go do what God's called you to do. And they knew that meant I wasn't coming home. You know, I went off to college three or four hours away and I visited for a couple of days of Christmas every year. <laughs> you know, I didn't come home at Christmas break. Why? Because I wasn't going to lose three weeks of studying God's word to go home and hang out with a bunch of people who like to watch TV and do other stupid crap. I wouldn't have wasted that kind of time. I thought, you know, for me, whenever 
there was a spring break or a Christmas break, that would that meant instead of having to spend four or five or six hours on my secular homework and only read the Bible three or four hours each day, that meant I could read the Bible eight or ten or twelve hours that day. So I stayed at school and studied a lot. Because you don't you're if you're gonna if you're gonna, you know, restore the church and turn the world upside down, you're gonna have to know some stuff. A lot of stuff. You know, and one of the things you're gonna have to know, you know, since we're on the Martin Luther thing today, is that reformed Christians were known for centuries for even the janitors knew the Bible backward, forward, inside out. Today, very few pastors know the Bible very seriously. Very few. I've not I know maybe five or six pastors in the Dayton area that I would say have a serious working knowledge of the Bible. That's not good. And you seldom encounter that in a Christian. And one of the things I would really encourage you is to study enough history and enough scripture that your standards of what it would what it would actually mean to know the Lord and the scriptures are more rooted in the scriptures and in church history than they're rooted in our contemporary Christian expressions. Does everybody hear that? That that is that will make or break your destiny if you could hear what I just said. Don't let your your understandings of what a Christian should know about scripture, church history, theology, apologetics, things like that be be influenced by the standards of our day because we're living in a very sub-biblical mediocre complacent kind of christianity that makes jesus throw up according to revelation chapter three right now myself i'm not jesus I don't mind lukewarm coffee. <laughs> this is warm. But I, I don't mind, like, I actually drink the coffee that's left over from yesterday. <laughs> but most people don't do that. <laughs> What's that? I know. <laughs> and Jesus seems to think he's going to spit it out of its mouth if it's lukewarm. So he's, he's a tougher guy than me. I'm a nicer pastor. I'll still love you even if you're lukewarm. But, uh, <laughs> but Jesus might not. <laughs> All right. That's important. So did we get, like, what God wants is a people that their regal head is Christ, that, that if you, you know, that we could honestly say, like, uh, I'll pick on Daniel Williams, like, you know, some, some uh, unbeliever when he used to be uh, the RA over there said, like, tell me about Jesus. He should actually be able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus. Like, if you want to know how Christians live, just come hang out with us. If you want to know why God's so important, spend a day with me. I don't think you could hang out with uh, me for a whole day and not have your life change dramatically. I would hope that we all would would have that kind of walk with God where like, man, I spent one hour, you know, talking to Austin and, and Kyle and like, wow, I began to realize I've been playing at this Christian thing for so long I, I really need to get serious. I gotta become like Kyle and Austin. 
And like the this idea that that's something for like pastors, that's nonsense. Like the whole goal of Christianity is I should be able to say, hey, listen, go hang out with Sam Chen Poon and Anvesh. They'll then you'll know about Jesus because they'll model Jesus for you. Their whole life's about Jesus. You'll know all about Jesus if you hang out with them. That's what real Christianity is actually about. So did we read all these verses like Hebrews 13, 20? Okay. Let's uh, go ahead and read that one, John Luke, since you're there already, it looks like. That's one of my favorites, by the way. This one's like, memorize this one, star it. The blood of the eternal covenant. Okay, so, so, you know, what's interesting is, don't we think of the Bible as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? But this uses the phrase, the Eternal Covenant. Now, what does eternal mean? It's more than forever and ever. Oh. Yeah, and it's even more than that. It's, it's outside and above time. It was, it is, it is to come, but, but etern you know, like when, when the, the uh, I love the song Amazing Grace, but the verse that says when we've been there 10,000 years by shining as the sun, that's actually really bad theology. We won't be there 10,000 years. We'll just be there in a realm where there is no time. Now, you can touch that realm by the Holy Spirit, and you can actually even understand that realm by touching the Holy Spirit in worship regularly and often. God put eternity in man's heart, and there's a, the, he, he gave you the capacity to, to grasp eternity by experiencing it in his presence. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast, hast sent. You should actually experience what timelessness is when you're worshiping. Because you, you actually enter those scenes like Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5. Guess what? Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5 aren't uh, 1,500 years apart. There just is. <laughs> right? That's why Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Seek first his kingdom and, and his righteousness. Why? Because actually the only reality is God touches the time-space continuum right now. And we can think about what we are called as human beings to study and prepare and plan for what we're to become. But in reality, who you are is who you are with God's presence and before God right this second. That's who you are. And being faithful there is the only thing you're actually called to do to become who you're called to be. Whoever has this hope, present tense, 1 John 3, purifies himself as he is pure because we know that when we see him, we'll be like him. So when you actually today, this moment, realize I'm going to be, you know, with God forever, if you really have that, You'll seek purification. You'll hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
right now. That can really help you in a time of temptation, by the way. Because who you are, you know, like so, so many people actually, one of their thinking processes to succumb to temptation is, well, I'll get more serious about God later. No, you won't. <laughs> you are who you are right this minute. <laughs> and, of course, uh, all that's kind of, we're getting metaphysical here. but um, Who's got 2 Corinthians 4, 12? Anybody? Go ahead, Byron. Lord Byron. And now that's a pretty simple statement, but think about that. What does that mean, Chris? That, so death is working in us, but life in you. What is Paul saying there? Okay. Um, John Luke? So, doesn't Jesus call us to be fruitful, right? Follow me and you'll be a fisher of men. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. But every seed has to fall into the earth and die to be born. Right? You got to plant that peach seed to grow a peach tree or wheat, whatever you're growing, right? So... What actually is you're called to is death has to work in you so that my life might work in all those around us that God's sending us to. And to the degree that the death of Christ has been perfected in you, to that degree the resurrected life of Christ will come forth through you. To the degree that you really are, not my will, but thy will be done. To the degree, you know, what what did G, what is, uh, Jesus say on the cross to the Father about the people crucifying him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was always it was a fun. We used to put that line on the on the board at uh, test. You know, <laughs> like Father, forgive us, for we know K N O W not what we do. Like we don't know what we do know, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, it was a little joke, but uh, um, think about it. it it's kind of it's kind of funny if you really think it through. Um, but guess what? Guess what you're going to be called to. You're going to be called to be abused, mistrusted, falsely accused. That's called being a Christian. And in fact, I always say this, like, if you're really walking with Christ, you will always have some people who love you and walk with you. You'll always have some people who respect what you're doing, but they would never walk with you because they don't want that much. God. But guess what? You'll always have some people who are actually opposed to you. And if you don't have that, you're probably not doing much in life. If you start moving toward the will of God, you'll have some people drop off. Right? And they won't really like what you're doing. 
And it's important that those categories are the right people. Because if you're a worldly person, you'll get lots of people in the world that uh, applaud you. You know, they're the Ohio State Buckeyes. They're great at football or whatever, you know. There's lots of worldly people who love you for worldly reasons, right? But we're not talking about that. We're talking about, like, are you so sanctified to God that the, the people in your life that are attracted to you are the people who want more of God? And that's why you can't actually walk with God without, like, uh, some, uh, some of who you're journeying with in life changing. Like, if you start pressing into God, some priorities and relationships are going to change. And you can't help that. You know, after I became a Christian, I tried to find some godly ways to keep in some friendships with my old friends. So I would, like, play pinochle with them. That's a card game. And uh, stuff like that. But before long, they didn't invite me anymore. Right? Because I didn't have any unlimited source of drugs for them anymore. And I didn't, you know, and I didn't party. And I didn't do the things they wanted to do. And the last thing they wanted to hear about was how I was, you know, what Jesus was showing me in the scripture this morning. <laughs> right? They weren't, like, interested in that, right? And if you start, you know, like most of you who, if you've come very far in God, you probably have had several times in your life where some friends dropped off. And sometimes that's painful, right? Because it's part of death. Or some parental relationships have changed. right now as far as it depends on you be at peace with all men but don't you know what don't compromise and you hope that you can get to a place like you know i was able to get to a place where my my parents respected what i was doing they never got to a place where they were that happy that i was that committed to god and that i want you know but they were understood it and got respected it and eventually, my wife's parents, my wife's parents thought we were nuts because they were good Episcopalians, and you know they were rich, and he was a prof university professor, and and so forth, and they were mainstream, and we weren't mainstream. <laughs> we were doing some radical restore of the church thing that wasn't like that mainstream. right but eventually my wife's dad came to love what we were doing and, and admire it and in fact he kept our church afloat financially during the first year of the recession but it took it took 30 years of being willing not to have him say say uh amen and i'm glad for what you're doing before he eventually came around and that many of you will face that in many relationships in life and staying faithful fully to Christ is always worth it in the end. My brothers and sisters all thought I'd become a Jesus freak. I'm, this is too crazy. This is too radical. But guess what? You know who they call now when their kids are going through a divorce or, or whatever. They always call me. We're having a family crisis. What, I, we need your help. Can you help us figure out what to do? Can you uh, recommend some books to read? Can you... You give us some counsel 
can you, uh, you know, prepare my son and, and his fiance? We, we know they're not really mature enough to get married. Will you do pastoral counseling with them while they're engaged uh, so that we can feel better about their uh, readiness for being married? But they're not going to join what we're doing <laughs> either, right? <laughs> Does that make sense? And so that's really, that'll really help you if you can get that out. Like, you should always have some, some comrades that are totally sold out to Jesus, that love what you're doing, and do it with you. Because they want to go affect the world for Christ on the most radical, crazy level possible. Let's go all out for this. Because I think the most miserable people in the world are people who are Christians who don't go all out for it. That is... To me, that's the saddest reality, to, to actually believe that Christ is real, but not, take, not let that impact how far much you study or other character issues of your life. That's a tragedy. If, like, you think this is all real, but it hasn't changed you that much. Like, if you can actually look back at yourself and go, yeah, I think that Jesus is real, but it hasn't changed me that much, that's problematic. That's very problematic. And that's often a challenge for, like, if you've grown up as a Christian, uh, I would tell you that today's American Christianity is so mediocre and so complacent and so forth, You, if you don't come to a place where, you, where this gets into you a little deeper and it really changes your priorities and your values and so forth, that's, that's a problem. It doesn't take you through a rethink period. Man, we got to get on point five, I think. So we get that there's a death so that there might be a new people that are resurrected. Uh, in other words, there's no true kingdom life on the wrong side of the cross. All right, who has not read yet? I kind of forget where we... Deanna, you guys, why don't we start with you and uh, Christine and, and Macy and do number five. So, uh, Deanna, you read number five. Christine, you... Uh, do John 3 and uh, Macy do Matthew 12, which is above somewhere, I think, maybe. Oh, yeah, because it, it's on the first page. So let's read some of these verses, but go ahead and read the point first. Or demonstrable or demonstrable. Either one is fine. Um, one of the uh, things that I would encourage you to think about is um, Bible-believing Christianity tends to uh, uh, approach the Bible with parts of the gospel, but not much else. So make sure you understand that there's biblical patterns for every... God has ordained different institutions in life, the family, the church so forth and there's biblical patterns for what each should be so one of the things they say about today's protestant christianity is there's no ecclesiology in other words there's no doctrine of studying the church but there really is a lot about what the church is supposed to be in the bible a lot and in fact that's the primary point next to christ the church is the agent of the kingdom of god so rethinking the church is actually the most important thing you could ever do 
So uh, read that one more time, Deanna. Okay, um, Josiah made a point last week where I asked about dispensationalism. He made a very good point in defining it very well. One of the uh, points we talked about is um, this line, it, God's predestined purpose has always been and remains. What does dispensationalism teach that's different than that? Well, they teach that it changes and that um, all you'd almost have to not really believe in predestination and God's foreknowledge because they think of the church as an afterthought as a second purpose. Right. What's behind the whole messianic thing and all that kind of stuff is in dispensationalism is saying that God's intention was for Israel to by works obey him. And that uh, because they rejected Jesus halfway through Jesus' ministry, he came up with the statement in Matthew 16 that I will build my church and the gates of hell won't. So that like the church was a was like a plan B because plan A wasn't working so well. And so God in the end will intends to restore plan A. So the people will be saved by works and and so forth. And we'll be just like every other religion. Right. So that statement that his purpose has always been and remains is huge. In other words, God knew Adam was going to fall. He didn't go, oh, my God, Annie M, it's a twister. Oh, oh, what? I don't know what to do. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Bill, Mr. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Like he he planned it, right? And God, you know, told look at Deuteronomy twenty seven and twenty eight sometime. God tells Israel through Moses exactly all the judgment he's gonna bring on them in the exile, because he already knew they were gonna try to do it by performance base and they were gonna fail. That was all part of his predestined plan because he took man through 2,000 years of learning you can't do it by your, by your own righteousness. And it's amazing that that performance-based Christianity is actually so prevalent in Christianity today because it's worthless. You are a scumbag. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Start with that. <laughs> Like, you start your relationship with God by just saying, I am a sinner. And you should have, you know, like, I don't know, I don't want Kyle and Austin to have a fight about it, for, but they should have, like, a, maybe a debate, like, I'm a worse sinner than you are. No, I'm a worse sinner than you are. No. <laughs> like, who's the worst comeback? I don't know. I know both of them. It's, it's a toss-up. No. <laughs> you know, like, we're all the worst scumbag, aren't we? Right? We all have, like, greed, selfish ambition, pride, self-righteousness, all sorts of disgusting characteristics, right? The great nobility of man. 
well, we were made in God's image, and there is a great nobility to man, and it's really been perverted by a thing called sin. And, and you and I have big problems with that. And the whole point was that God predicted that he would eventually get tired of Israel and, and, and uh, send them into captivity because they kept pursuing it as if it was by works. That's what Romans 10, 1 through 4 is all about. All right, so Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In all, there's three parenthetical statements. So one is the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not about religious activities. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. And that righteousness, peace, and joy, the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Where his presence is made manifest, that's where the kingdom is advancing. That's why when Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit came into situations, the demons freaked out. I know who you are. <laughs> well, you know, why? Because they didn't like that presence. And they knew what it meant. And they still do. They still do. Okay, so uh, who's got uh, some of these scriptures? Christine, you got John 3, 8, or which one do you got? Right, so you don't know uh, whence it comes or whether it goes. That You know, like, we can see the effects of the wind, but we can't see the wind itself, right? So is everyone who's born of the Spirit of God. Like, we don't know why their motivations are that way and why they're, the, you know, this godly thing. So, you know, there are people who will acknowledge, wow, you guys really got it together. But they don't know why. or how or what's you know like what you guys are all about I, you know it seems strange to me <laughs> right all right let's keep going uh who's got the next any other verses anyone got first corinthians 12 3 you you got matthew okay i'll tell you first corinthians 12 3 real quick it just says um he's talking in verse 2 about when you were pagans you were led astray by dumb idols and so forth. So I make known to you that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, right? So part, John 15, 26 tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to bear witness of Christ. Acts 5, 31 tells us the same thing. The ministry of the Holy Spirit will always show you the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom. Okay? So... And so, therefore, God's people are actually called to be filled with his spirit, both individually and corporately, and extending the, his spirit through worship, prayer, proclamation, and so forth. He, casting out demons, all the things that, that, that are done by the spirit of God in the Bible are what the kingdom of God's about. 
So if, some, if somebody really is converted to Christ, they're converted to Christ by what? By the Holy Spirit. Right? You can witness to them, like if, if you notice in Acts 5.31 and in John 14, I'm sorry, John 15, 26, and 27, Jesus says that when the helper comes, he'll bear witness of me, and you will also bear witness of me. So there's always, in Acts 5.31, tells the same thing. There's always a dual witness that brings everyone to Christ. There's Jonathan saying, well, listen, I was brought up religious and all this, but then I became a Christian, and this is how Jesus changed my life, and, you know, and this is why he's so real, and da-da-da-da-da. And then the Holy Spirit starts bearing witness to what you're saying. But without the Holy Spirit bearing witness to what you're saying, it's worthless. So that's one of the reasons we emphasize so many things about how to, to be filled and stay filled with the Holy Spirit. That's huge. Like, hopefully you all have a sense of, like, God's, the presence of God's Spirit is growing in my life all the time by leaps and bounds. And I walk in more anointing. Does anybody want to read some of these verses here? Uh, no, let's let's read number six first, and we'll go. We'll come back to five and six. Uh, so, Macy, read number six. So, Deanna and I were talking about this today. Um, I often uh, get a lot of my fellow old guys. Uh, <laughs> you guys don't know any of those. There's like people that are 60 and older. They really are. But uh, <laughs> some of my fellow old guys will always be a little amazed that, uh, that I pastor a church that almost everyone's under 35. And uh, and I'm like and uh, I'm like I'm amazed that you're not <laughs> right because the Bible's emphasis is always on the next generation. Okay, I remember a guy who I had discipled, you know, stopped doing campus ministry, and I asked him why, and he told me he was too old. You know, he was old enough to be these kids' fathers. And I'm like, I'm old enough to be their grandfathers. That's all the more reason to get involved. <laughs> Grandpa Weiss, you know. <laughs> uh, here, this, you, you, can, you can just introduce me instead of my pastor. This is my grandfather. <laughs> this is Grandpa Weiss. <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he was around when the Ancient of Days was a lot younger. <laughs> No, like, no, like, the emphasis is always upon the seed. You know, Paul was a lot older than Timothy. Do you think Paul, like, didn't know what he was doing? Anybody think that? Do you know what? Jesus was a lot older than John. Probably about 16 years older. John, most theologians think John was 14 when he left his parents to follow Jesus. Jesus was 30. Like, probably the oldest of the disciples were about 20. Why? 
because Jesus wanted them to be fruitful long after he was gone. Right? And most of the disciples were, thir were fruitful for about 30 years after Jesus was gone. It would have been longer, but most of them were killed by the Roman persecutions. So a lot, of, a lot of the disciples died in their 50s and 60s. But, uh, but by that time, they had a lot of Timothys and Tituses that were a lot younger. You know, when you get to be 30, I would encourage you to be ready to be discipling people that are 20 but have enough knowledge, wisdom, experience, radicalness with God that, like, they ought to pay $500 for an hour with you, but you would never charge them. <laughs> but because like an hour with you should, should change their lives. Make sure you have that kind of content in yourself. And that has to do with studying, that has to do with experiences with God, that has to do with letting your, yourself be discipled, that has to do with taking the hard choices to, to become something much much different than what our cultural norms are. Don't like let yourself have things like emotional problems or whatever that, that aren't healed in God. Because there's more than enough provision to get everything straightened out. I came to God, I was nearly insane. And you know, I'd been a drug addict for years, I was uneducated. I, I could hardly talk. Mostly I could say, like, yeah, wow, man. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I wasn't in the top 50% of my high school class. But I came to Christ, so all of that was out the window. I started chasing something that had eternal urgency every minute of every day. And I would really encourage you to ask God to grasp your life in such a way that you're like an eternally urgent kind of person. Ultimately, all of God's actions, movements, dealings are designed to produce, that is, his covenant people, his, his special treasure that we've been talking about, the people for his own possession. And he wants to work in and uh, through us to subdue the earth in his view of subduing which we already talked about how his view of leadership is very different than the world's. We don't lord it over him, we liberate him. And he wants the entire earth to be filled with the, the manifest presence of his glory. Many churches today don't even expect the manifest presence of God, in, but that should be what you're expecting in worship or prayer. You should be expecting a kind of presence of God that really changes people. Uh, this involves the reproduction of children born of his spirit. I think it's okay if you're one, two, three, four years old in Christ, if you're not bearing much fruit yet. But make sure you're determined that that's not going to be the direction of your life. Most Christians today almost never witness and have hardly ever led someone to Christ and discipled them. Make sure that's not going to happen to you when you've been in five and seven years. And that's about choices you make, about studying and who's, how radical of a group you want to be a part of and who's going to disciple you and all that kind of stuff every day.
don't get held back because there's no there's nothing better in life than multiplying the life of Christ into something else like someone else the, 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 I mean that is God's greatest privilege to actually be able to be used of God to form Christ in someone there's nothing better than that not even NASCAR <laughs> it's kind of like NASCAR all right, so let's uh, let's stop at number six, and because uh, it's late, and we'll pick it up for hopefully uh, hopefully like one more week or two more weeks. But these are just um, like I said last week. This is probably less scriptures than we normally have. You probably noticed that, like because frankly, these are kind of statements that are the whole Bible. Right. So like the, you know, the evangelical way of doing Bible study today is you have a preconceived idea, then you slap a proof text onto it. And that's why most even college, you know, John Gray doesn't mind my telling people this. You know, he he came to our church with a bachelor's degree from Alaska Bible study and Bible. And he knew almost nothing about the Bible because the, the whole approach is just isolated scriptures. But the Bible is meant to be studied as one story historically accurate, inerrant, infallible story from God that's about his predestined plans and you're, you need to look for the big picture items to understand the Bible. And don't have a bunch of nitpicky religious things that aren't about like the big picture. We are the hope of the world. No one, we are living in dark times and no one else is coming but you and I. And, and, the, and there's no hope for mankind except the restoration of Christ's church. There's no hope for the economies of the world. There's no hope for the human trafficking issue. There's no hope for the worldwide abortion issue. There's no hope for the worldwide devaluing of human life. There's no hope for the worldwide fatherhood crisis. Even in evangelical Christianity, that most fathers are crappy fathers, really crappy fathers, really crappy fathers. And there's no hope for any of these issues except the church becoming what it's supposed to be. That's why I go all out to be, find the most radical Christians I can find and be a part of them. If there was a group more radical for God than us, I would quit our church tomorrow. I probably wouldn't wait till tomorrow. because there's no one else coming. And so I'm hoping to impart that to you. I want you to be infected with that disease. That you have to, every day, I have to know the Lord more. I have to know more about his word. I have to know more about history. I have to know more about how, how life really works so that we can become a life-changing group of people together. So hopefully, uh, hopefully this, you know, I was, you know, like now you're supposed to say like, hopefully this wasn't too radical. Hopefully this was really radical for you. And if it wasn't radical enough, I'm sorry. I, I'll learn to ask God to help me become more radical. <laughs> Sam Chen Poon, close us in prayer, will you?